Okay, this morning, I hope y'all enjoyed uh, getting into James 1. this is a, a special section of scripture to me. One of the reasons is that um, I have a wonderful father-in-law. His name is Dick Wyma. He spent 50 years in the mission field in Bolivia, which is the, uh, a landlocked country in South America, even though it does have a navy full of one ship. And um, when I met Dick, I felt like I was looking into the eyes of Jesus. Barbara, how are you doing? <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> He, I had never, I, I stood in front of him and I thought, this must be what it's like to be looking at God because his eyes had this peacefulness that I had never, I, I just had never been around. And I, I walked away thinking he must spend so much time in God's word that it's just permeating through every part of his being. And, and I remember that today, just like I did, you know, like it was yesterday. And about three years ago, um, he was sitting at my kitchen table Um, His wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's 12 years ago. 10 years ago, we forced them off the mission field so that, um, because it just wasn't happening. Nobody could be in Bolivia to help take care of her. And about uh, six years ago, we forced them from the place that they were living with the mission organization in Florida to Chicago because she needed full-time care and it was killing him. And so my father-in-law, who has uh, spent his life teaching scripture, he went, he's like Indiana Jones. He went into the Amazon, a tributary of the Amazon, with a tribe of Indians that had never seen anybody but their own people, learned the language, wrote the language, translated, and they have scripture because of men like him. And um, he was the field chairman for all of South America. So he would go to conferences and teach thousands of people. And he sat at my kitchen table with this verse sitting in front of him. Consider it all joy. This man of God sat there crying at my table because number one, for all effective purposes, his wife was dead. The one person who could share memories with him, she sat there, but there was nothing in her mind. He went from having people around him all day every day to sitting in an apartment by himself. Every day he goes to the fourth floor of the Alzheimer's unit and sits with his wife and coaxes her to eat. And then he goes home and he sits by himself because he's an elderly gentleman and they didn't, they didn't live their life in Chicago, so they don't have friends that they, they spent life with. And at that phase of life, people aren't making new friends. And he sat there, this man of God, saying, how do I do this? It says, consider it all joy. And he said, I don't feel joy. I don't know what to do. And I think a lot of us read this scripture and do, you've gotta be kidding me. Consider it all joy. How are you supposed to do that? But we are. And Christ tells us that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. So there's something in there that if we're feeling heavy and like we can't do it, there's a secret in there. So let's see if we can find it today. But as we get started, I'm going to put up a slide that I'm so scared of. Can you go back? Or is it the next one? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Because I don't really like pictures of myself. I had to have a picture of myself taken for something. And when I look at that, I'm like, oh my gosh. My, when I was in fifth grade, I fell on the flying turtle and broke my front tooth. And so 
that tooth that's still there is still there. And they've bonded my other teeth to match the discoloration of that tooth. And so when I smile, I'm like, ooh, that's, that's so gross. So when I look at a picture of myself, as we all do, what do we see? We see all the imperfections. And it's just agonizing. And then I open scripture, and what do I do? But I put myself in front of the words. And so I'm reading scripture based on my preconceived ideas, based on my presuppositions, based on my history, based on my familiarity with the passage, based on what I've been taught, all kinds of things I come at scripture with putting me in front of the scripture. And I read it as it relates to me, okay? That's a red flag to me to stop because right there I'm making scripture all about me. There's a small problem in that. It's a little hard to see God if I'm doing that, okay? So rather than put myself in front of God's words, I need to take myself out of the picture, next screen, and get him who's behind all the scripture. Rather than read it as it relates to me, I, we, need to read it as it reveals him. And that's gonna be a challenge in the book of James because James has many, many wise admonitions and great uh, thoughts on how to live life. And the challenge is gonna be for us to find him rather than read it as it relates to us, okay? Um, hopefully I'll exit long enough to see God. Maybe I can put my opinion away just so long enough to, to see what he has to say. Because if I can, what really seems to be a heavy load, consider it all joy when you're going through trials and suffering, it just might be easy. And that's why I titled this The Unbearable Lightness of Grace. Because it's almost like we can't bear it, and yet it's so light. You know, it's a hard one. But it's consistent through Scripture. God is always consistent. He never, ever contradicts himself. So when he says it's light and easy, he, he's not kidding. And when he says you can do it all through him who gives you strength, that's true too. Never, ever can he say something and not do it. And he's pretty much always swimming upstream. I don't know if you've noticed as you read scripture, but it's fairly contradictory to the way the world would tell you to live life. Almost always. So don't buy into what culture is telling you because he's a little bit countercultural. Okay? So this considering pure joy trials, this one is right up his alley, and he's not kidding because there is great stuff behind that. So quickly, let's look at James since we didn't really go. You know, I know that y'all looked at the introduction and chapter one today. James, at a glance, he's the brother of Jesus. He's one of the select individuals Christ appeared to after his resurrection. Paul called him a pillar of the church. Paul, on his first post-conversion visit to Jerusalem, saw James. Uh, Paul did the same on his last visit. Isn't that interesting? When Peter was rescued from prison, we know that he told, James, told them to go get, tell James. And when James, James was a leader in an important council of Jerusalem, and Jude could identify himself simply as the brother of James. Neither one of them said they were brother of Jesus. How humble. That's a little key to the whole thing. He was martyred in AD 62, which is a little after he wrote this book, and he wrote it as a pastor to instruct and encourage his dispersed people in the face of their difficulties. Does that sound familiar? That's us. Okay, so let's go on. Consider it joy. I look at that and I do a little, are you kidding me? And he says, whenever you face trials, so we can right there know that we will face trials. And there's not going to be a trial, there's plural, and it says of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Okay, testing of your faith. 
that's such an interesting concept, and it's not new either. Testing of your faith started at the beginning, started in the garden. There was a little testing action going on with Cain and Abel, and we got to see the other side of that. The faith was tested. One of the brothers came genuinely with his heart there to, to praise and to uh, serve the Lord. The other came with himself in the front of the picture. The testing went on. You can look throughout Scripture, through Moses, through Abraham. He was tested when he was told to take Isaac and uh, sacrifice him. Okay, Jacob was tested when he fought. Do you remember when he wrestled the angel? And what happened at the end of that wrestling? His, the socket of his hip was touched so he would never forget. Because you know what happened right after that testing? Right then and there, in that instant, Jacob made the Lord his God. It went from being the God of his family to his God. Well, how cool that he could remember that for the rest of his life. Every time he took a step. That's pretty neat. You know, seriously. Would that possibly be suffering? Hmm, yes. Did he know God in a way that he had never known him before? You bet he did. Ah, oh, what would you give to wrestle with God? Sound hard? Oh my gosh, the stuff on the other side is brilliant. Because then you know who you're resting in. There was more. Daniel, dietary restrictions. You think it was a little scary for him as he stood in front of the Babylonian king and said, I'm not going to eat that? And he didn't. He was being tested for great and mighty things. And you know what came out of Daniel's testing? God's name, oh my word, was proclaimed in a huge way. Do you think King Nebuchadnezzar thought a little something when those boys walked out of a fiery furnace and they didn't even smell like smoke? Whose name do you think was praised at the end of all of that? Your God that can do anything, that, that is completely countercultural, that is over everything that you could imagine, so much more so than anything the world's going to tell you. That's exciting. That's at the end of testing. Jesus asked to, tested his disciples before he left. He had them do a little exercise in Luke 9. When Jesus called the 12 together, he, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases and sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. And what did they do? They went. And what happened? Were they left out there and hungry and cold with nowhere to stay and they came back ragged and tired? No way. They came back full and they came back alive and they came back completely cared for. It was a tiny little test so they could taste what was about to happen because he really was about to leave them and it would feel like it was nothing. They'd feel like they wouldn't have any bread. They'd feel like they were hungry because all around them that's what they would see and yet he would say stay the course I don't leave you with nothing. I don't ever, never once go look through the whole book. Will you see God saying to somebody, hey, I need you to go over here, and by the way, I'm going to meet you on the other side. Good luck with that one. He always says, I will go with you, and he does. And more often than not, he fights the battles for us if we let him. Why did he do this, you know? Why would he do it? Because faith is a big part of that. Okay? Right after he did that little test with them, they forgot it because we always forget. They stood in the face. I and mean, this is literally right after it. Jesus is speaking to the 5,000. Dusk approaches. People need to go home and eat. What do the disciples say? Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. 
and that's almost laughable from the other side, except I would be doing the same thing because logically they would have to leave and go home and get food. Not quite so with Jesus. It's never like that with Jesus. His sustenance was at hand. And did he, it wasn't even like it was exactly what they needed. It was more than they needed. It was abundant and overflowing. So much so they had to get baskets to gather it up because there was so much food left over. That's who you believe in. That's who tells you consider it all joy when you face trials. Okay? Oh, goodness. And, and his tests, by the way, they aren't like the ones that my kids are taking right now that they really get sick over. And quite frankly, I get sick for them because I don't know how they do it. I, don't, I, I know I went through school, but I, for the life of me, can't even tell you any algebraic equation or biology or any of that stuff. I mean, it's crazy. And uh, this isn't the same thing because I can't be there, nor would they want me to be there holding their pencil, helping them color in those circles or write the words. But he is there with us, okay? So when he says that the testing, we actually really do want it. It may not seem like you want it, but you really do, because what comes on the other side is brilliant. And it's faith that comes on the other side. Can anybody help me out? What is faith? Come on, Hebrews 11. Being sure of what you hope for and what? Certain what you don't see, okay? In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Now we see, but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall know face to face when we see him. I, but now I know in part, and then I shall know fully as I am fully known. Right now, we don't know it in full. Lean into that. It's the only time ever in your existence that you won't know it fully. And there's a lot we can learn about God when we don't see him face to face. Does that make sense? It's beautiful. The angels don't get to have faith. Satan has never had faith. We're the only being that gets to have it. There's aspects of God that you get to know that you'll never get the chance to know again because you are on this earth and you don't see him. So lean into the testing. Get to the faith part where you don't see. And if it's trouble, you know, if you're having trouble with it, just ask him. He's there Two, whether you believe in him or not, okay? There's this funky story in the Old Testament about Balaam, who was a pagan, pagan prophet, and he was just pathetic. And uh, the Lord used him for his glory and his purpose because God is in control. And it was weird because Balaam was told to go tell Balak about the Israelites, and he was on his donkey, and his donkey stopped in the middle of the road, and Balaam whipped him and beat him and whipped him and beat him, and he did it three times until the donkey finally talked to him. Okay, and that sounds bizarre, but it's real, okay? It's historical, and it's an account. So when you wonder again, who is God? Who am I trusting in? Uh, he could even make a donkey, which, you know, all through <laughs> so many translations, they use a different word. And, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the donkey talked because he saw God. The Lord opened the donkey's mouth and said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey, you've made a fool of me. If I, had if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now because Balaam was so full of himself. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road and his sword drawn. So Balaam bowed down and fell face forward. Did, 
Did uh, the Lord's existence on that road have anything to do with the fact whether Balaam could see him or not? No. He was there. Even the donkey saw him. It was irrelevant whether Balaam saw him with his eyes. God was there. I tell my kids all the time, you know, my little guy, he's, he thinks about the Lord a lot. And uh, I blew on him the other day and I said, do you feel that? Because he was wanting to know why he can't see God. And I said, do you feel the air? Yeah, I do. Do you see the air? No. And I was like, does it make, does that change the fact that the air and the wind is there? And that's how God is. That kid can't grasp it. I'm not sure I grasp it a lot of the time. But that's who we believe in, okay? It might seem um, sort of unbelievable at times, but it's not. Faith, one thing about faith, the the only way that you can have it is by knowing who you have faith in, okay? So there's a little secret about it, and it's knowing God. There's, one, there's a few ways that you can know God, through scripture, through prayer, through creation. You can look outside and see, because he tells us that, and through others, okay? So for this little exercise, let's look and see what we can learn about God through James 1, Okay? In verse 5, we see that God, and this is head knowledge, God gives generously. In verse 13, God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That one might make you stop for a moment, because there was a portion in, in when Jesus went out into the desert before he went to teach, what happened? Satan had a little moment with him, which he was allowed to have. And we know that he was tempted, it says. Yet right here it says that God can't be tempted. But if we keep reading, this is where you go, I don't, sometimes you hit scripture and you go, oh, I don't like that, it seems contradictory, I can't lean into that. Lean into those things and ask the question, what do you mean? Don't ever shy away from stuff because he's there and he tells us, ask and I'll give it to you. So you ask, I don't get that, Lord, how is that? You know, how could that be? Because that seems contradictory, but he can't be contradictory because that would be counter to who he is and he can't negate himself and he can't contradict himself. And so right there in verse 4, if, you know, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask, but don't doubt. Ask and don't doubt. So in verse 14, but each one of you is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Jesus was never dragged away, okay, and enticed. He was victorious right then and there over the one behind it all. Remember his words, and his words were, it is finished. So the temptation was not something that sunk into him at all because he never let go and went to that evil desire and, and had birth to sin, which is what we see in James that tells us that happens. And that's crazy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Does that make you excited at all? Because that is God right there above contradiction. That's who you believe in. The power of, the, of God to be able to be holy man and holy God, how is that? That doesn't sink. It can't. It's too big. That's who you believe in. That's who says consider it all joy, persevere, because it's going to increase your faith in that God. Okay? So there's purpose behind the trials and the suffering. And one of the greatest of which is drawing us closer to him. The physical outcome of our trials holds very little relevance compared to the spiritual. It's so hard 
when you're in the middle of them until you're in the middle of them drinking him. And then it's not so hard. But we fight it. We don't want to lean into that. We want to have it be how we think it's going to be. It doesn't have to be. Because he's walking with you. Which he tells us. So there it goes again. Do I know him? In verse 6, he tells us, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave blown in the sea and tossed by the wind. The men should not think he will receive any anything from the Lord. Who am I relying on when I doubt? Me. That's not a good place. I'll just tell you. Tell my kids that all the time. Going to fail you pretty much every day. Don't rest in me. Um, he's a double-minded man in all he does. Okay? Seems a bit heavy until I realize that not doubting really just means trusting. Okay, and it goes back to the whole thing. If I know who he is, man, I can trust in that. I really long for that. The rest of this stuff wears me out. Religion wears me out. So much wears me out. He doesn't. That's safe. Are you drinking of him? Are you getting it? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know with the testing of your faith develops perseverance. What is perseverance? Continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failures, or opposition. Look back to verse 1. How do, you, do you have to persevere? Does this fall on your shoulders? According to the verse, it tells us that testing of your faith develops perseverance. And there goes the whole reading of this. Am I reading it with me in the front or am I reading it with him? Because if I get the develops part, then I realize that's not on my shoulders. Because that feels heavy. Perseverance, oh, feels a little heavy. Is anybody a runner in here? I used to be. I have a bad knee. I can't run anymore. But I will tell you, um, how do you up your mileage? How? You go further. What happens when you're going further? It hurts. Does it hurt? It hurts. Okay? But what happens on the other side? Well, it feels good. It really does. I, I loved whenever I'd go to Arizona to run in Arizona because the altitude and the hills. And I could come back home after running a couple of miles in Arizona and run at least two more here without hurting at all. That's what perseverance is. Leaning into the testing because on the other side it's brilliant. How can we persevere? What are we to do? We're considerate joy. Not be happy, you know. Joy isn't just like, woohoo, doing cartwheels. That's not what he's saying. It's true joy. What do you receive? The crown of life. Why do we receive the crown of life? Because he tells us in these verses, we stood the test, and one other thing, he promises that. Do you have to stand alone? No, never, ever. So how do we do it? It's more than listening and here comes the other conundrum, the little faith and works thing. The sweet thing about the faith and works part is that all we have to do is surrender. That's pretty much it. It's crazy how it works that way, but it's very consistent with Scripture. Throughout Scripture, we see that in the supernatural way, consistent with countless analogies to things like vine and branches, the growth and the fruit comes from the source, not the other way around. Are you hearing how simple this is? What's the key? Knowing God. The key is knowing him, marinating in him and who he is. The Pharisees were doing just the opposite. They had the work thing down. 
We see a lot of people in our lives that have the work thing down. You got, you know, I got to do this, 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 and then that happens. Because as you grow up in life, that's how life is. That's what you learn in this world. Our kids are learning that in school. You study, you do this, you do this, you get an A. God does it a little differently because he says, rest in me, and there comes the fruit. Okay? He looks at the heart. He expects us to obey. He wants you to be available. The tree and the health of the roots, it's that's what that produces the fruit. And this kind of goes to the whole thing of the light burden and the easy yoke. I want y'all to write down 2 Samuel 22, 26 through 33, because it gives you a good picture of who God shows himself to. To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless, to the pure you show yourself pure, but to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. 2 Samuel 22, 26 through 33. And then it tells you a little bit about God. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. What is flawless? Without error, there is no flaw. You can believe in that. What is joy? How do we have joy? It's not the cartwheel stuff. It's his presence. And he tells us that in Psalm 21. Surely you have granted him eternal blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. Joyful and hope. Hope in the one that you, that you have your eyes set on. He tells us in Romans 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, because that's what helps us. Jeremiah 15, 15. When your words came, I love this, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Are you eating? Are you eating? I hope so. I hope we all eat through this. I really do. Because that, that admonition is one of those where you go, seriously? Consider it all joy. What about the little girls that just lost their mom to cancer last week? What about the husband that lost his wife and is now a single father? And these are true. What about the mother who just gave birth to twins and had a heart attack right after it and slipped into a coma? What about my friend Lynn, who found herself yet again for the fourth time in five years without a job? What about my friend Gary, who discovered late in life that he had been molested by his mother and his grandfather when he was a little kid? What about the mom who watched her young boy desperately fight and lose the battle with leukemia? What about the dying children in the Horn of Africa? And let me tell you, God hears every one of those cries. And he endures it. Because he loves us. And he shows himself through that. What about the 10-year-old girl that's sold into slavery and prostitution by her family? What about? Because the list goes on. And I know every single person in this room could fill in that what about. How do you do it? My friend Kelly walked into an oncologist's office a few years ago with his wife who had breast cancer. They walked out after yet another incredibly difficult and terrible diagnosis. And he said to her, tell me something, Karen. Tell me about the God to whom we prayed before we went into that doctor's office. She remembered, oh yeah, he's the God that hears all. He's the fortress of salvation. He's the counselor. He's the healer. He's my provider. And he asked her, has he changed in the time we walked in and walked out of the office? 
No. He's the same. When you think about considering it joy, lean into it. <coughs> because the joy is this. And I'm looking at my friend Anne because we have a friend that is really struggling. Because it isn't. The stuff she's going through, it is bad. And she is a champion. And to say to her, you want to need to consider it joy. It's not the circumstance. It's in whom is the one that you trust where you find the joy. And I'm going to tell you that um, I think a lot of times we look at the trials and we think, oh, I really learned the most about God in those trials. Thankful for the trials because you learn about God. Try just a little bit leaning into God the same way you do in a trial when you're not in a trial. And let me tell you, you want to experience joy? It's right there. It's so great. It's so great that when you hit the trials, you don't even know you're hitting them because you're, you're so intimate. Love the trials, ladies, because when you are in the center of the hurricane, it's peaceful. You don't want to be in the outside where the winds are going crazy, but in the middle, it is good. And so you really can consider it joy. And you could actually, without saying it, be ready for the next one. Okay. I hope that's encouraging to you. I really hope as you read James that we'll all be careful to take ourselves out of the picture and look at how it reveals him. And that's a challenge. Okay? Let me close in prayer. I hope, Lord, that your words never fall to the ground. Uh, forgive me for being an imperfect tool, but you are perfect in every way. May your words tickle our ears. May we be hungry for you. May we thirst after you. May we go to the water, the river of life, where we'll never, ever be thirsty again. To the one who meets us in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our failures, and warmly embraces us and picks us up and carries us through them. May we trust and know you in ways that we never have before, all to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.